All right, good to see you. Just a few brief comments by way of introduction. You have heard me say this, and you've heard this said many times from this pulpit and in our services, so this will come as no surprise to anyone. But as we read the Bible from Genesis through Revelation, in particular as we understand everything that is revealed to us by God and what we know as the Old Testament, His covenant that He made with Adam and the covenant of works that He made with Adam and Eve in the garden that they broke and then the covenant of grace that He instituted in Genesis 3.15 in promising a Redeemer to come. The covenant that He made with Noah that He would not destroy the earth but that He would sustain it. The covenant that He made with Abraham that He would make for himself a people out of Abraham that his people would have a land and would know him and worship and enjoy him forever. The covenant that he made with Moses through which he gave the law. The covenant that he made with David through which he promised that a son of David would reign on the throne of righteousness forever. Through all of these things, the revelation of the law and the prophets, we understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. He is the fulfillment of everything that is revealed in the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of everything revealed in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant anticipates His coming. And it makes Him obvious when He shows up on the scene. It is quite clear that God's people are in tremendous need. In tremendous need of one who could keep the law for them. In tremendous need of one who could make atonement for them and reconcile them to God. They are in tremendous need of one who could teach them and could guide them into all truth. They are in tremendous need of one who could protect them, shepherd them, and bring them home to be with God forever. Throughout church history, God's people have seen in Scripture that Jesus has a threefold office. We have already confessed that together this morning. He is prophet, priest, and king of his people. These offices arise in the Old Testament and Jesus is the fulfillment of them. And in our passage in Mark's Gospel today, we will be able to see Jesus functioning in all three of these roles in like 25 verses. We will see him functioning as a prophet as we consider his cursing of a fig tree and the lesson that he teaches his disciples from that. We will see him functioning as a priest as he shows up at the temple and cleans house. And then we'll see him as a king in his triumphal entry. It's an interesting name for it, triumphal yet humble entry into the city of Jerusalem, the holy city. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I hope that you do open them up to Mark chapter 11. We will be looking together today at Mark 11, 1 through 25. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, don't sweat that too much anyway, because we've got this handy dandy screen up here and we will put the verses up there for your use. It will help you to follow along as we look at God's Word together. And so now I'm going to read God's Word for us before we look to it together to consider what it contains. Listen now to the Word of God, beginning with Mark 11 and verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of His disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has needed it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? 
And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So we're going to consider this passage in four parts, four sections, four points. Pick your flavor. The headings in the ESV are not inspired, but they actually serve us quite well today. So we're grateful for that. We'll keep this simple, and we trust the Lord will use it, and will strengthen and encourage our faith in the Lord Jesus. Part one, point one, the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 of Mark 11. In the first six verses, we just have some narrative description of what's going on here with Christ and the twelve in particular. We see that as they draw near to Jerusalem, they are making their way to Jerusalem, remember, for Passover. Jesus is quite aware that he is making his way to the holy city to die for the sake of his people. Jesus sends out two of his disciples into the nearby village to bring back a colt, a colt on which no one has ever sat. Jesus tells them what to say. He tells them how things will go. And then everything essentially transpires just as Jesus said it would. So that's verses 1 through 6 there in a summary. Now in verse 7, we see that the colt that the two disciples went to get is brought to Jesus. Cloaks are put on top of the colt, and then Jesus has a seat on the colt. And then in verse 8, we see that people start laying their coats and their cloaks and Branches, leafy branches, we're told, on the road before Jesus as he rides into the city on this colt of a donkey. Now, this is similar 
to something that happened in the Old Testament when Jehu was anointed king of Israel in 2 Kings 9. They did the same thing. So this is not unusual for people to lay their coats and branches and things like that in front of a king making his way into the city. And while that is really interesting and cool, what is far more important is that this, what Jesus is doing here, was the fulfillment of words written by the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah in chapter 9 and verse 9, at least in our versions, obviously there were not chapters and verses originally, but in his prophecy that was written down for us, says these words. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Zion being the holy city. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. And he's going to come riding on the colt of a donkey. This was quite deliberate on the part of Christ. We see how he's intentional in giving instruction to his disciples. You're going to go and you're going to get this colt and you're going to bring it back. Here's exactly how this is going to go. He sits down on the donkey and rides into the city. This is not coincidence or happenstance. This is a very deliberate claim on the part of Jesus to be the one of whom the prophet had written. The people in verse 9, you can put your eyes there, are shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are citing the psalm that we read together earlier. Psalm 118 and verse 26. A great pilgrim hymn in the Psalter that they would have been singing as they made their way up to the heavenly city, right? To the city of God, to Jerusalem for the Passover. Hosanna is a, just for those who may know, we just sang a song by that title, is a Greek transliteration of an Aramaic word that means save us. So when these people say Hosanna, they're saying save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In verse 10, we see that they're shouting something else as well. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. So they're making shouts of the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're making shouts and great celebration about the kingdom of their father David being established. And they're crying out, save us. This is quite a scene. They're thinking with excitement and with joy, perhaps, that this is it. This is the establishment of David's messianic kingdom. Perhaps this is it. It's good for us now to just hit the pause button for a moment and think together. The people in verses 9 and 10 of Mark 11 speak better than they even know. They speak better than they know. They speak better than they understand. But it becomes quite clear in a matter of a few days that they do not fully understand the kind of Messiah that Jesus is. Why do I say that? Well, the same crowd, the same Jewish crowd that on this day is shouting Hosanna and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and blessed is the establishment and the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Those same people 
in a matter of days would be the ones shouting crucify him, kill him. Because he's a blasphemer and a tremendous disappointment, frankly. Jesus would, as the people are crying out, Jesus would save his people, but not the way that they thought. Jesus would establish the throne of David forever, but just not the way that the people thought. The people expected a kind of conquering military Messiah, a great shepherd warrior king who would come and overthrow all of their geopolitical enemies. He would deliver them from their foes. And in this immediate context, they would have been thinking, he has come and he is going to overthrow the Romans. The Roman people who oppress us, who rule and reign over us, Messiah has come and he's going to set things right. He's going to liberate us from Rome. He will conquer our enemies. And Jesus would conquer the enemies of his people, for sure. But he wouldn't do it through military conquest. He wouldn't do it through some obvious display of power. He would instead save his people by laying his life down for them. The people were not expecting, or wanting, for that matter, a suffering, crucified Messiah. Many still feel that way today. All this talk of suffering, crucifixion, wrath, a substitute bearing the penalty we deserve, a theology that tells us that we're actually weak and not strong, a theology that tells us we will suffer and then comes glory, a theology that tells us we will struggle and finally be delivered one day. Many still feel pretty badly about that kind of thing today. But brothers and sisters, saints, Jesus, suffering and crucified, is exactly what we needed. Jesus suffering and crucified is exactly what we needed. Think about the depth of our sin. Before a holy God, think about the depth of our sin. Think for a moment about the sinful actions or the sinful thoughts and sinful desires that you've had. Those are pretty bad. Like if we were to, on that screen right there, randomly pick somebody from the congregation and say, we're going to just kind of run a little high-speed clip of your thoughts, your desires, your actions, that would be horrifying to any one of us. Because we know that we have thought and felt and wanted and done horrible things. We know that every one of us, ordinary as we are, are capable of extraordinary evil. But it's not just that. It goes far deeper. Our Sin runs far deeper than any thought, any feeling, any desire, any deed that we've ever had or committed. Our corruption that we inherited from our first father, Adam, has messed up, ruined, wrecked, and tainted every aspect of our person. 
There is not an aspect of our being that has not been destroyed and marred by sin. We sin because we are corrupt. Inherently. We do not become corrupt because we sin. Sin is a condition and a state before it's ever an action, before it's ever a thought, before it's ever a feeling. Our corruption runs deeper than we could ever imagine. This is why we desperately needed a Savior who not only could wipe away sins committed, but could also satisfy the wrath of God for our corruption and then positively give us righteousness. We needed a Savior who was perfect, who was sinless, who could take our sin upon Himself. A Savior to whom we could come and exchange our filthy rags for His righteousness. A Savior who could pay the penalty that we owe God for breaking His perfect law. A Savior who could suffer our punishment in our place. A Savior who could make the many to be accounted righteous. And the good news, brothers and sisters, is that in Christ Jesus, you are forgiven. In Christ Jesus, you are forgiven. Now, sometimes people wig out when you just make a pronouncement like that. Like, brother, how can you say that? I say that based on the word of God. It's not my idea. It's not my opinion. I can't absolve anybody of sin. But Christ has done it. On the basis of Jesus, his work, his death, his sacrifice in our place, you, we are forgiven. And if that's not amazing enough, in Christ Jesus, we are also righteous. Like, holy smokes, a person, a wretch like me, a person who has never kept God's law, really, who's broken every commandment he's ever given me, a person who still battles mightily against my own corruption. Think about your week. That burden of your corruption is real. That internal war that you fight is real. And there are times when it feels as though, and it may be as though in our experience, that sin has won the day. How in the world could people like us be forgiven and counted righteous? Jesus, now and ever, is our plea. We sung it today. Jesus and His blood is our plea forever. Jesus and His perfect life is our plea forever. When we stand before the throne of God, we will not stand on any good work that we have ever done. We will stand on no good thought that we have ever had. Our righteousness is only and always found in the person and work of Christ in our place. That's why we know that for us who have trusted Christ and have been baptized into Him, have been united with Him by faith, that the fact that we stand today justified means that we will be finally saved. Because Christ has done it. Weak and frail as we may be, Christ has won the victory. 
The Father accepts us in Christ Jesus. He loves us in Christ Jesus. He accepts Christ's worthiness for our unworthiness. He accepts Christ's purity for our defilement. His sinlessness for our transgressions. His faithfulness for our faithlessness. His obedience for our lawlessness. His glory for our shame. His holiness for our corruption. His righteousness for our dead works. And His death for our lives. Praise be to Jesus' name. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Said all of God's people from all time. And along with the Apostle Paul, we all proclaim thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been set free from the law and from the weight of condemnation that we justly deserve. That's the good news. And it's over. So brothers and sisters, look to Christ the suffering and crucified Messiah. Trust Him. Hope in Him. Cast yourself upon the mercy of God in Him. He is exactly and only what we need. He and His work are sufficient to save even the chief of sinners like you or me. Put your eyes back on the text in verse 11. We're making our way into the second point or section of the sermon here, but we want to look at the fact that Jesus arrives in the holy city, the king arrives there, and then the priest of God's people walks into the temple and he looks around, he assesses what's going on. Doesn't do anything then, it's already late in the day, he is truly human, he and the disciples are going to go back out to Bethany for the night to rest. They'll come back tomorrow, which brings us to point section number two. Cursing the fig tree. Cursing the fig tree. We're going to look at verses 12 through 14 together for just a few moments. So it's the next morning. Jesus and the disciples come from Bethany back into the city. Bethany was a, a village not far away, a couple of miles probably. And they make their way back to the holy city of Jerusalem. And as they're walking, we see there that Jesus in the end of verse 12 was hungry. Just these wonderful things, right, about his humanity. He's hungry. He slept the night before. He's now hungry. He sees in verse 13 a fig tree in the distance. From a distance, it looks good. It's got leaves on it. He gets closer to it to assess whether there's fruit on it or not. When he gets there, he sees that there isn't any. And then he pronounces a curse on it in verse 14. Now, as is so often the case, there's a lot more going on here than meets the eye. There's obviously the, the real physical realities of hunger in a fig tree, and there's no fruit on the tree, and Christ curses it. But this entire thing is, in one sense, a parable, a visual parable. The fig tree is representative of Israel. The prophets a number of times refer to Israel or depict Israel as a fig tree. So this is a relatively common image. The only one that would maybe be more common is the image of a vineyard in the prophet's writings. Jesus, through this visual parable, is conveying what's going on in Israel. That's what parables do. 
So the parables of Christ are not so much moral tales as they are very provocative, visual, story kind of descriptions of what's really going on then. They're punchy. They're meant to kind of shock as Christ assesses reality. He cuts through the nonsense and the facades and all that. And so he's doing that here. The tree is in leaf. It looks good from a distance. It looks as though it should have fruit on it, but it does not. This too is like Israel. All kinds of religious stuff. It looks good from the outside. It looks good from a distance. But the whole thing is a whitewashed tomb. Let's think together for just a moment about what we see going on here in this text. Dig a little deeper. Because it's a legitimate question to ask. Okay, Jesus curses the fig tree because it doesn't have fruit on it. Looked like it had fruit, doesn't have fruit. He curses it. But it says in the passage that it wasn't the season for figs. So why would he do that? It's a real question. Like disclaimer, we're heading into deep water here for just a moment. We're heading into like mind of God, sovereign will of God, redemptive purposes of God's stuff that are far above my pay grade and yours. This business, though, of cursing the tree because it doesn't have fruit, even though it isn't the season for figs, this too is representative of Israel. This time in redemptive history was not a season in which Israel was bearing fruit. Why? This was not the season for Israel to bear fruit. Why? Think of the words of the prophets. Think of all that the prophets spoke in terms of God's judgment upon His people, in terms of God's even hardening judgment upon His people. Think, for example, there are numerous texts that we could look at. But in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, just listen to these words. God says to Isaiah, go and say to this people, quote, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart, God says to Isaiah, make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Jesus has cited these words himself already in Mark's Gospel in chapter 4 about the parable of the sower and the fact that he teaches in parables for this very reason. To you, he says to his disciples, the secrets of the kingdom of God have, made, have been made known in plain. But to those who are outside, everything is in parables. God had acted in judgment on a sinful people. He had in his sovereignty and in his purposes of redemption and even judgment he had hardened his people Israel he had given them many good things but even while all the good that he had given them had passed away from them this is all like keep in mind this is all part of God's plan this is what's hard sometimes for us as we think about scripture this is part of God's plan think of, of Paul's words in Romans 11 
In Romans 11.25, Paul says that there is a great mystery that he is writing about. Brothers, there is a great mystery. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in to the kingdom of God. So, as we assess this, Israel looks good from the outside. Inside is a whitewashed tomb. It looks as though there should be fruit. There isn't any. This isn't a season in which Israel would bear fruit because God had acted against them in judgment. And at the same time, even though God had done this, the people were still responsible for their unbelief and hardness of heart. They were culpable. For Israel, Jesus, again, he's cursing the tree. He says, may no one ever eat of your fruit again. Keep in mind that the temple that he's going to, awesome as it was, the temple and the religious system that it represented would be leveled in 70 AD. It would be leveled. No one would ever eat of its fruit again. Now, as I said, these are really, really deep waters. The secret things belong to the Lord. It is not ours to know everything that is in the mind and will of God from His sovereign perspective. There is mystery in this. Humility is the order of the day. We say what's in the Scripture and we acknowledge that we do not understand everything fully. Because when we act like we understand everything fully and we try to put this together really neatly with a bow on it, we end up hurting people and saying things about God that aren't true. God is bringing about, through judgment even, His purposes of redemption. It's the kind of God He is. Jesus in this passage is occupying His prophetic role in pronouncing and declaring the truth of God, even as it pertains to His judgment upon Israel, which moves us now into section point three of our sermon today. We're going to title this Cleansing the Temple. We're just going to keep these creative headings coming. Cleansing the Temple, verses 15 to 19. So Jesus, as the great high priest of God's people, shows up at the temple in the holy city. This is where God's presence dwelt on earth in this time. He does not like what he finds. In verse 15, we see that he comes in and he cleans house. He starts turning the place inside out and running people out. The buyers and the sellers and all the craziness that was going on. Verse 16, we read that he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He's stopping the circus. It's like, hey, the band is done. Everybody needs to go home. Right? In verse 17, we start to understand what the issue is. Jesus begins to teach the people. You see that. He was teaching them and saying... Is it not written? He's going to cite the prophet Isaiah. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Is it not written? That all the nations will come to the temple and it will be a house of prayer for them. Yes, it's written. That. But you have made it a den of robbers, he says. He's picking up on the words even there of the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7. That same language is used. Things are not going as they should in the temple. Like, it, it really has become a circus. Like, put a tent on that thing, right? All of this, here's the deal. Like, Christ's emphasis on the fact that this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations, but yet you've turned it into this 
like horrible version of a flea market. All of this hoopla, all of this craziness would have been taking place in the area of the temple known as the court of the Gentiles. The temple, many may know, was arranged the, most, the holy of holies, right, where the Lord dwelt, and then out from there we had the holy place, and then it kept working on out from there. The most outer portion of the temple complex was known as the court of the Gentiles. It was the only place where Gentiles could be. And this is where all of this nonsense is going on. It's so congested and so crazy that one would presume that Gentiles would not have had access, really, to the temple. And so Jesus drives this home. That this is meant to be a house of prayer for all the nations, and you have turned it into a den of robbers. We see here Christ's concern that the Gentiles would be able to come to the temple. It's good for us to remember, as we've thought about many times, even through Mark's gospel, that Jesus would be given by God as a light to the Gentiles, as a Savior to them. The coastlands and the Gentiles await the Savior of God. And upon his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the gospel would go to the nations. That's why most everybody in this room is even here today. Because God is a God of the nations. When you read that in your Bible, the coastlands wait for him. It's not absurd to think about us. Alongside that, we could also surmise that there is the issue of exploitation. People would have traveled a long way to come to Jerusalem for the Passover. It would have been customary for them to purchase an animal to sacrifice there rather than bringing one with them on their journey. And it does seem, you know, given Christ's den of robbers language, that perhaps this whole thing was being taken advantage of by greedy people. I think both are going on, but the primary emphasis is on hindering access to the temple. The chief priests in verse 18 do not like this at all. They rarely like what Jesus does. They are seeking a way, we see, to destroy him as they have been doing. They fear him, though, we see. Because all the crowd was astonished by him. It's quite a remarkable turn of events at the very end of Christ's life that puts him on a cross. There is all of this fanfare and excitement about him. The people love him. And yet, in just a few days' time, he would die. And then we see in verse 19 that evening came and the disciples head back out to where they're staying, which brings us to our fourth and final section, our fourth and final point. We will call this teaching on the fig tree. Teaching on the fig tree. So it's again the next morning, 24 hours after they had come into Jerusalem before. And they pass by in verse 20 the fig tree that Jesus had cursed. And they see that it's withered to the roots. Peter, in verse 21, points that out to Jesus. Hey, like, look, man, that tree that you cursed over there, it's withered. And then Jesus is going to teach his disciples again. He's going to apply what has happened with the fig tree to them. Where does he go? Immediately, verse 22. Peter says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed is withered. And Jesus answers them, have faith in God. Have faith in God. That's the application. Right? And now he's going to unpack that. He illustrates in verse 23 
how the power of God operates through faith. The power of God operates through faith. So we talk about this a lot. Nobody is saved by faith. Nothing good is happening by faith. Faith is the means through which people are saved. Faith is the vehicle, right, through which the power of God operates. Jesus saves. God works. Faith is the means, the vehicle through which this happens. That, that matters. Because a lot of times we almost act like it's faith itself that's doing something. No. It's the object of faith that matters, right? So Christ is pointing out in verse 23 how the power of God works through faith. In particular, faith as it practically fleshes itself out in prayer. Because remember, prayer is essentially the outworking of the life of faith. We understand who we are, who God is, how much we need Him, how desperate we are, and therefore we pray. Martin Luther said one time, this is pretty good about prayer, just a thought, this, not in my notes, just an aside. Martin Luther said that prayer should be brief, frequent, and intense. It's pretty good. Brief, frequent, intense. Rather than these long ramblings that so, so often happen, right? But it's more like something happens and it's like, God, help me. That happens a lot through your day. Give me grace that I might not sin. Keep me from stumbling. Sustain my faith. Right? These are the things that we pray. Watch over my family. You fill in the blank. So, we see in verse 23, as Jesus starts to tell them, if you were to say, he illustrates the power of God working through prayer and faith. If you were to say, be taken up and thrown into the sea. If you were to say that to a mountain, and you pray it believing with faith, he says it will, become, it will come to pass and it will be done for you. Again, we're not talking about a literal situation where mountains are being cast into the ocean. We're talking about an illustration of how, how marvelous the power of God is working through prayer and faith. Things that are flat out unfathomable and impossible for you and me happen through faith and prayer. It's God who does it. And lest we get carried away with the quality or the quantity of our faith, here's how Jesus says this exact same thing in Matthew's gospel. This is helpful. In Matthew 17, 20, you can write this down if you want to. Matthew 17, 20. This same account, Matthew's version of it, Jesus says it this way. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. If you have faith that's massive and awesome and perfect, that's not what he says. If you have faith that's like the grain of a mustard seed, this will happen. It's not the quantity. It's not the quality. It's the object of our faith that matters. It's critical for us to see these things and understand them together. We see in verse 24, quite simply, that the prayer of faith is effective. God will answer it. Jesus says, therefore, whatever I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it, it will be yours. Now, few comments here because I would be irresponsible if I didn't say these things given how verses like this are often abused if we pray and this, this is eastern religion right eastern religion will tell you know what you want envision it envision the getting of it speak it into action 
It's Eastern religion. Jesus' words here about whatever you ask in prayer, if you believe that you receive it, it will be yours. They need to be understood in the broader context of his own life and in the context of the entire witness of Scripture. So think about Jesus and the fact that he would be praying a prayer in just a few days' time to his heavenly Father in a moment of great anguish and grief where he would pray, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, what I'm about to do. Take it away. I'm about to die and drink the cup of your wrath. I'm about to accomplish all of these things. Remove this from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Christ certainly prayed in faith. Think of Paul's thorn in the flesh. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is where this is detailed for us. The messenger of Satan, as he calls it, sent to torment him. We don't know exactly what it was. We could speculate, but that doesn't matter. But what Paul does tell us is that he pleaded three times with the Lord to take it away. And the Lord answered his prayer. The paraphrase of God's answer, Christ's answer to him is, No, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And in the case of Paul, we would also say that a lack of faith does not seem to be the problem. So here's the takeaway. I've already said the prayer of faith is effective. Write that down. The prayer of faith is effective. God is always faithful to answer the prayers of his children when we come to him in faith. Even grain of a mustard seed faith. He will always answer our prayers according to his perfect will. And before anybody concludes, well, then why do we pray? God, again, in his wonderful and mysterious providence, has told us in his word that even our prayers are a means through which he brings about his perfect purposes. That's a mind blow. That our prayers are a means through which God brings about his perfect purposes in his world. He will always answer our prayers in accord with what will bring about our eternal and lasting good. Write it down. Take it to the bank. It's good money. And I don't know about you. I mean, this is me talking. I'm glad that God operates this way, that he always answers my prayers in a way that is in accord with his perfect will that will bring about my lasting and eternal good. Because there have been a number of times in my life where I have prayed for things. I think in faith, sincerely, I have prayed for things that 10 years or 10 minutes later, I'm like, pretty glad he didn't answer it that way. I trust you have had similar experiences. You look at your life and you think, man, I would have never planned it like that. I would have never asked to go through that. But yet I see, not perfectly, but I see the faithfulness and the providence and the goodness and the mercy of God. God always answers the prayers of His children. Whatever we ask Him in faith, it will be given us. And we can't ever understand verses like 23 and 24. We can't understand them divorced from salvation and redemption. We can't. Because when Christ will talk like this, 
Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it. It will be yours. We know that we know that we know. As we come to God and cast ourselves upon the mercy of Christ, as we look to Jesus and trust and rest in Him, we will be saved. It is certain. The promises of redemption are encapsulated even there in those verses. Now in verse 25, Jesus is going to say one more thing. He's going to tell us that it matters that we forgive one another. That we forgive other people. You can see it. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. So that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. This is a big deal. Think of the parable of the unforgiving servant. Our withholding of forgiveness toward other people is indicative of something wrong in our heart. It's a big deal. We are called quite plainly and clearly in Scripture to forgive each other. Matthew 18, 21 and 22. Then Peter came up and says to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Like, that's a lot, right? Jesus says to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Like a bunch of times. We talk about the number 70 and the number seven and perfection and completeness and all that. A bunch of times. Like indefinite number of times. Luke 17, 3 and 4. Jesus says this to his disciples. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day, and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now, this is another conversation and sermon for another time. We have a hard time with that sometimes in the church. We are so prone to assess and weigh fruits of repentance and assess people's repentance that we often, people will come and say, okay, yeah, I've committed this sin and I'm sorry and I'm repenting. And we almost put them on probation for six months it's like, well, we'll assess your life and watch that, and we'll determine if you're legit or not. That's not how we should go about it. Christ is quite clear. I'm not saying throw discernment out the window. But Christ is quite clear that even if they sin against you seven times in a day, like we would definitely be saying, there's no way you're really sorry. You've done it seven times today. He says, forgive. We are called to forgiveness of one another. Why? Because we do the same thing before the Lord. How many times have you committed or I committed the same sin in the same day? And every time we come and we say, Father, forgive me for my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And he says, it's done in my son. We're called to forgive each other. We bear with one another in love. I'm going to stop talking about that for a moment and land the plane. The way that Jesus teaches his disciples regarding the fig tree is really instructive for us and it's incredibly helpful. Why do I say that? We thought about the visual parable piece and how it's like sovereign will of God, decrees of God, mind of God, hardening and judgment and all these things that we can't fully understand. But then, when it comes to what does this mean for us? How do we apply this, Jesus? What does he say? Have faith in God. What does he say? Pray. What does he say? Forgive each other. What can we learn from all this magnificent mind of God, sovereign decreed will of God stuff? His purposes of redemption and judgment? Have faith in God. Pray. 
in faith to him and forgive each other. Those are great applications. It's helpful and it's freeing. There are things that I can't understand and that you can't understand that we will never fully understand. But we can understand those things. Trust the Lord. Have faith in God. Pray to Him and forgive each other. The first and greatest application of Scripture is always trust Christ. Trust the Lord. And then He gives us wonderful applications under that, like pray in faith and forgive your brother when he sins against you as I, the Lord, have forgiven you. So in all those things, brothers and sisters, that you encounter in your life, just like me, that you can't fully understand, when you encounter something that's so difficult and you're like, the only thing I can chalk this up to is the fact that I live in a fallen world. I don't see how there's any earthly good at all going on. God, what are you doing? Where are you? When you encounter moments like that, remember the words of Christ here. Concern yourself with trusting God, resting in Christ, hoping in the Lord, praying to Him in faith, and forgiving your brothers and sisters. He is a good God. He has forgiven us so much in Christ. He's kind to us and gentle with us, even in the ways that He teaches us. Praise be to His name. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to You now in need, just like we have been all morning, just like we were before the sermon started. We ask that You would take the preaching of your word as imperfect as that may be and use it and apply it to the hearts of your people. We pray that you would use your word and the table that we are about to come to to sustain and strengthen our faith in Christ today. We have received Jesus in the scripture and now we will receive him in the bread and in the cup. We pray that you would minister to us even now by your spirit that you would remind us of the fact that we have been reconciled to you through the work of your Son. Remind us of your love and concern for us and that we can cast all of our anxieties upon you. We ask, too, that you would strengthen us in our inner man, that we would comprehend with all the saints the love of Christ for us. Do that now, even as we come to the table, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.